Father, I thank you for the book of Judges. And I say that, Father, knowing that this is a book that can be difficult for us to read. And all of the various things that are recorded here, Father, it seems like it's nothing but a stream of, of error and mistakes, of rebellion, sin, selfishness, greed. Father, the whole story reads of, of men, and in some cases women, doing things we, we think would be displeasing to you. And we question, Father, why we would even want to focus on these things. Can't we think of better things on a Sunday? And, Father, we just remember now, having studied it for this long, that there can be such good and useful purpose in knowing how to go wrong before you because we repeat those mistakes so easily. And so I thank you, Father, for the example of these men and women so that we would know better what pleases you. And I thank you, Father, for the Spirit. We see him come upon men in in the Old Testament for a period of time to do work as you call them to do, but... We have such a unique blessing in the church, Father, to have the indwelling of the Holy Spirit who lives with us, walking with us. And I thank you, Father, for that gift. And I pray, Father, we would take full advantage of the mercy you've given us in Christ to seek a a different path than those we read in this book. We don't judge the men who preceded us, Father. They sin, we sin. It's not as though we have anything more to offer than they did. But we don't want to fail to take to heart the lessons you've provided here either. So I ask, Lord, you'd speak to our hearts, each of us, according to your will, about what it is you want us to do with what we learn, so that our hearts in the season of Christ's birth would be hearts that reflect him and his life, his example, and not that of those who oppose him. And let the word today be useful in our hearts to accomplish that end, Father. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I've got good news and bad news. The bad news is that the story of Jephthah is not over yet. The good news is it finishes today. And I say that because this guy is, uh, well, he's a character that gets us thinking long and hard about how can someone be so close to the Lord and yet be so far in his behavior. Last week in chapter 11, we see him defeating the Amorites as God called him to do, which is great. But then all of that good work was undone by that rash vow that he made that he would kill the first one who comes out of his tent when he returned from the battle, remember? And he learned a hard lesson when he did that. He learned that making a vow does not force God's hand. You know, a vow is simply put, us making a promise to God in the hope that God would return that promise by doing something we want. A transaction of sorts. But as we learned last week, God's not going to do anything differently than he was already planning to do in the first place. So it's not as though you can force the hand of God by promising to do something for God. And yet, when you do make such a vow, as the Bible taught us last week, you remain obligated to keep your word, so that if it turns out that what you wanted is what God chose to do, then you have this obligation now to follow through on a vow that was never needed in the first place, that was unnecessary from the start. And so in Jephthah's case, his bargain was he wanted to win the battle, and in order to to force God's hand to let him win the battle, he said, I'll sacrifice whoever steps out of my tent when I come back. He probably assumed, as we said last week, that the first person out of his tent would have been a servant, which would indicate how little regard he had for the lives of his servants and how much he was thinking like a pagan in that day, that this would please God somehow. And it turned out to be his only daughter who walks out of that tent. And it was a reminder of the ignorance of the day, of Israel's time, of the men who lived in this time, their fleshly living, their ignorance of the word of God. I mean, Jephthah, being a judge of Israel, should have known the word of God, but he was so ignorant of it and so unfamiliar with God's heart that he not only thought sacrificing a human being would somehow please God, 
But then when it turned out to be his daughter, he didn't realize that in Leviticus 27 he could have foregone following through on it if he had just been willing to pay a price in, in place of her death. His ignorance led to her death. This is the central lesson we're learning in the time of Judges during Jephthah's reign. That the people of God now have fallen so far away from where they began under Moses and Joshua that even their judges are now ignorant of the word of God. And the people are blind, but now their leaders are blind as well. And of course, you know, the blind leading the blind gets you nowhere. Under these circumstances, then, we aren't surprised to see the sin of the people of Israel increasing. I've used the example of a governor on an engine. Gasoline-powered engines have to have some kind of governor to prevent them from racing away until they self-destruct by turning too quickly. And so there has to be some mechanism that controls that to govern it. And in the lives of the people of Israel, God used other leaders, kings, judges, and the like, as governors on their sin, the law being the ultimate instrument to govern their sin. But when you remove the law, because people are ignorant of the word, and when you raise up leaders who don't know it any better than their people, there's no governor now, apart from whatever grace God may bring in some other way. That's what we find now as we move into the final act of Jephthah's time as judge in chapter 12. The battle with the Amorites has ended, but there's still a fight underway. And this fight now moves from the enemy of the Amorites to within the camp of Israel. Now you're going to see the tribe of Ephraim returning with a grudge, like we saw earlier in the time of Gideon. Go to chapter 12, and we'll see how it begins in verse 1. Then the men of Ephraim were summoned, and they crossed to Zephon and said to Jephthah, Why did you cross over to fight against the sons of Ammon without calling us to go with you? We will burn your house down on you. <laughs> I'm stopping there because you've got to get the background on these, on these guys. Now you remember earlier, you should remember earlier in Gideon's story, when Gideon encountered a similar moment with disgruntled Ephraimites. Back then in Gideon's time, the tribe of Ephraim was upset because Gideon had gone to battle against the Midianites and he had not taken any of the Ephraimites, the tribe of Ephraim, with him as part of his army. And at that time, we learned that the tribe of Ephraim was in contention with another tribe of Israel, Manasseh. These were the two most prominent, most populated tribes of Israel. And so they had a tension of sorts as to who was the prominent tribe. Who was the big man on campus within the nation of Israel? So the fact that Gideon took some of Manasseh's tribe with him into battle, but didn't take any from Ephraim, almost caused a civil war, where Ephraim was willing to go to battle to prove their strength among the other tribes. Now fortunately at that time, Gideon was able to defuse the whole thing by reminding the leaders of Ephraim that when the battle came to its end, the kings of Midian were fleeing through the land of Ephraim, and the Ephraimites killed the kings of Midian, caught them and killed them, and effectively ended the war that way. So Gideon points that out to the Ephraimites and said, you remember, you had the best of the battle. In a sense saying, I saved you for the best part. That was enough to mollify the concerns of the Ephraimites, and they went home at the time. Now again you hear that the tribe of Ephraim has got their knickers in a bunch because, the, it's a technical term, because <laughs> Jeff, Jeff, now he went to battle with the Amorites without bringing them into the battle. This is a strange jealousy that motivates the tribe of Ephraim, right? It seems like they take offense any time another tribe finds success. And here you see him again, threatening violence even against the house, it says, the house of Jephthah. What that means essentially is they're threatening his judgeship. It's not strictly speaking about the dwelling. It's a word that represents his right to rule, his authority. It's just like saying we're going to bring down your rule. So these are pretty violent people. 
Like Gideon, Jephthah tries to negotiate his way out of the problem, but unlike Gideon, good things don't happen when Jephthah opens his mouth. And we saw that earlier. Verse 2, Jephthah said to them, I and my people were at great strife with the sons of Ammon. When I called you, you did not deliver me from their hand. When I saw that you would not deliver me, I took my life in my hands and crossed over against the sons of Ammon, and the Lord gave them into my hand. Why then have you come up to me this day to fight against me? Alright, well, here's what he said. In, In so many words, his response is, We were in trouble. I called you. You ignored my request. So we went without you. And I assume that his answer is truthful. I mean, I assume this is what, in fact, happened, because we studied last week about the way Jephthah traveled through the Jordan River Valley, north and south, kind of back and forth, collecting from the tribes that bordered that region the men that made up his army. And if you look at a map, the tribes that border that region are Manasseh, again, Gad, Benjamin, and Ephraim. So I would trust that he's saying things truthfully here. He was going around asking. He just didn't get any help from Ephraim. And that seems to be the pattern for this tribe. They're haughty. That's a term in scripture for a very specific kind of of attitude. It's pride, but it's pride mixed with a sense of superiority such that you look at everyone else in lesser form as well. You can be prideful without diminishing others. That's not good either, but it's better than being haughty. Haughty is, I'm good and you're not. And they fancied themselves this privileged, powerful tribe, this leader within the nation. They were aloof. They, they refused to give aid, it would appear, to their own brothers, unless, I assume, there was some political advantage for them in doing so. But if someone else appeared to gain an upper hand to do good things without them, well, then they would respond with threats, like a bully, trying to intimidate others into submission. That's the sin of Ephraim. Yeah, this is evidence or examples of the collective ignorance that's taking place in the whole nation because of what has transpired over the last 250 years. And... Ephraim is now going to become the source for the next step down in the deteriorating culture of Israel that we've marked along the way in the book of Judges. These, these moments in which you see the culture just take another leap downward in who they are and how they live. Ephraim's going to introduce the next one, which is this sense of growing independence among the tribes. And it's hard for us to appreciate this now because we have the whole of history behind us. We look at it now with all of that hindsight. So when we think of Israel today, we think of them as a collection of tribes that make up one group. You know, we really think of Israel as a whole. We don't even really talk tribes anymore, even if we could identify who people were by their tribal origins, and that's generally not possible today. Even still, we probably wouldn't care. Israel is Israel is Israel, and so it should be. But that's not how it always was. And in this time of their history, they are beginning to lose the identity that they had originally as a single group, a single family, under the law, born of Abraham and the like. Instead, they now begin to see themselves as competitors, as individuals, individual tribes, with differences among them. When you see this develop in any collection of people, when it stops being us, and it starts being them and us, you are just one step away from conflict. Conflict is inevitable. It is only one small step from thinking that I can be different than you, to thinking I can exist without you that you and I are independent in our existence. This pattern is, is emerging now in the nation of Israel. And it's not unique to the nation of Israel. In fact, this same pattern of, of sort of sin and, and self-reliance and arrogance, it's common to any group at some level, and it's still common in the church today. 
Paul teaches at various lengths in his letters about the need for oneness in the body of Christ and that we're not individuals serving the Lord individually, but rather part of a body that serves by one spirit, right? We all know this. He even uses at one point in one of his letters in 1 Corinthians the analogy of our body. You can't take a part of your body separated from the rest and expect that to live on its own. It needs the rest of the body. But nonetheless, despite the truth of that and our knowledge of that truth, pride and arrogance can lead us into repeating this pattern of sin within the body of Christ. Not only do we begin to think ourselves superior to our brothers and sisters in the body if we're not careful and get that haughtiness about ourselves, but even worse, we can begin to think we don't need each other. That once I have something of my own, I don't really need that help or that support, whatever that might be. We cut free in a sense. We determine that we're going to do things our own way. I've seen it individually within a body. I've seen it though with people who leave bodies. People who've decided that church isn't for them anymore. Being with the body of Christ is more of a burden than a benefit. And so in some kind of cost-benefit analysis, they decide they're just going to cut free. What's going to come from that though is dissension, attacks, and ultimately we're making ourselves look better by how we push others down. There's a chain of behavior that leads to that. Some kind of sin, whether it's in pride or arrogance, whether it's in gossip, whether it's in speaking ill about others, whatever it is, and it starts with thinking, I don't need the other person. These are common human emotions, but there's no place for them in the body of Christ. We have to guard against this kind of thinking. You have to place yourselves in a position of dependence by choice, not in a position of authority or superiority over someone else. Because if you do that, it's a civil war coming. It's a recipe for civil war. And it's what's led to the kind of distinctions we see in the church today. Denominations, differences of thought within denominations. And this is not to say all denominations are equal in their value for what they teach or what they know. But if they're of the spirit, then they're of the body. And if they're of the body, then anything that draws a distinction or division is unhealthy for the sake of that body over time. We are nothing apart from Christ. So how can we make any claims of self-worth, especially if we need to do so at the expense of our brothers and sisters? It's only by our association in Christ that we have any value at all anyway. Unfortunately, Ephraim is not thinking like this, right? And because the entire nation is operating without sound biblical counsel or godly leadership, this cycle now is turning to a new low. They're going to go into civil war, and it all comes about because of the haughtiness of Ephraim. But it also comes about because Jephthah is not skilled at dealing with this problem. Because after telling them that they missed the battle because it's their own fault, he then must have assumed that his words were not going to mollify them as Gideon's did. So he actually takes the battle to the Ephraimites. It's Jephthah who attacks first. In verse 4 it says, Then Jephthah gathered all the men of Gilead and fought Ephraim. And the men of Gilead defeated Ephraim, because they said, You are fugitives of Ephraim, O Gileadites, in the midst of Ephraim and in the midst of Manasseh. The Gileadites captured the fords of the Jordan opposite Ephraim. And it happened when any of the fugitives of Ephraim said, Let me cross over, the men of Gilead would say to him, Are you an Ephraimite? If he said, No, then they would say to him, Well, say now, Shibboleth. But he said, Shibboleth, for he could not pronounce it correctly. Then they seized him and slew him at the fords of the Jordan. Thus there fell at that time 42,000 of Ephraim. So you have a haughty Ephraim inciting battle, threatening to burn down the house of, of Jephthah, so to speak. Jephthah telling him, well, it's your own fault. And then after that confrontation, realizing if these guys are going to burn my house down, well, I'm not going to let them do that. Let's go burn their house down. 
They call Ephraim out. There's a battle, it says here. He begins by raising an appeal to the Gileadites. And these are the folks who live east of the Jordan River in Gilead, where Jephthah lives. And Jephthah has raised an army from among them. Now think about the challenge this time. In the past, we've had men like Gideon or Jephthah or others raising men, raising armies, to battle enemies of Israel. Now the argument is, I need a new army. We're going into battle. Oh, who are we going to fight this time? The Moabites? The Egyptians? No, 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 no. Your brothers. The Ephraimites. And now that's a harder sell. How do you motivate one Jew to fight another? Well, he finds a way to do it. The Gileadites live right between Manasseh and Ephraim, more or less, in the line of fire, let's say. And over the years, as those two tribes have contended with one another, not necessarily taking up arms, but, but in other ways, contended with one another, the Gileadites have been in the middle. And they've had to suffer through that conflict of one kind or another. So Jephthah says in verse 4, you're in the middle of the conflict. Would you like to put one of these down so that you don't have to deal with this fighting anymore? How about we fight the Ephraimites, let's shut them down, and then you'll be better off. And apparently the jealousy and the arrogance of, of the Ephraimites had left them with no friends. So it wasn't a hard sell. And as a result, the battle takes place. And it takes place east of the Jordan, in Gilead. So somehow the Ephraimites have been drawn out from hill country north of Jerusalem, down the wadis or the fords, the places where the water travels from the hill country down into the Jordan River Valley. They've come down into the river valley, crossed the river. They're in Gilead. That's where the battle takes place. They're defeated. At this point, you have a bunch of refugees from the battle, Ephraimites, who are saying, we better get home before they take us and kill us. Where do you go? Well, you go back up the fords. You go back up those river valleys that lead up from the Jordan River. And you go back up into the hill country of Ephraim where you're going to be safe in your home area. At this point, though, Jephthah's army cuts off the retreat. They take, it says, all of the fords coming up from the river. So now the Ephraimites can't get home. They've been encircled. But here's the problem. How do you tell one Jew from another? You see, when it was the Amorites... Or when it was the Midianites, their dress, their language, their appearance, there was enough distinction that they weren't going to hide very easily. But Jews are Jews. They look like Jews. They use the same language. They dress alike. At the moment that the Ephraimites decide we're done with this battle, they just start walking along with the Gileadites and calling themselves Gileadites and whistling the same song. And, oh yeah, we're one of you, those bad Ephraimites. You know, I'm glad we defeated them. You know. How do you find them? Because, see, Jephthah does not want to have this battle again. And he is determined to put an end to the Ephraimites' challenge to his authority. So he wants to wipe out this army. They determined that the Ephraimites had taken to speaking with a unique accent. And there were certain words that Ephraimites could not pronounce without betraying their tribal origins. One of these words, apparently, was shibboleth. This is the Hebrew expression that can mean either an ear of corn or it could mean a flowing stream. Shibboleth. Now, we don't know how the Ephraimites pronounced it. We don't even know how the Gileadites pronounced it, for that matter. But you can imagine some modern examples of this same test. Eastern Oriental cultures lack the R sound, many of them. So it's impossible or very difficult for them to pronounce words with R's properly. And they'll substitute another sound, a consonant sound like an L or something else, to just get close, because that's the best they can do. Their mouth doesn't know how to make the sound. Similarly, Nazis would identify Russian Jews when they were trying to find the Jews in Russia by the way they pronounced kukuruzu. That's a Russian word that if you were Jewish, you couldn't speak it quite right. Kukuruza. What's really ironic is that's the word in Russian for corn. 
So that's how they would find Jews in their day. You know, we do have that today, right? If I was from the south, deep south, and you said pronounce Shibboleth, I'm not say Shibboleth. <laughs> I put an extra syllable in the word. My wife and I were on a train in Paris one time. When, when you're on a subway, everyone just sort of minds their own business, right? But there was one, unfortunately, American family sitting on there with us and we were careful not to identify ourselves as American because of them but they they were speaking loudly and when they were talking about places in Paris they were going or seeing or whatever they got to the Champs-Élysées anybody know how that's spelled? Champs-Élysées well the way that this uh, very southern lady chose to pronounce it loudly on the subway was the Champs-Élysées <laughs> to which all the French people on the train who could speak English sort of, you know, <laughs> laughing and, and derision was pointed toward that, that family. But that's the kind of thing we're talking about here, where I can show you the words, I can ask you to say it, you can hear how I say it, you still can't repeat it because it's just not wired in your head that way. So the Gileadites use this technique, and they use it to kill, it says, 42,000 Ephraimites. They fail the test, they're killed on the spot. This is a serious blow in Israel's history. You've got full-blown civil war. So why do we have this episode recorded? I mean, it's interesting to think about it and the history of the words and all of that, but what's God trying to tell us by taking time to record this event in chapter 12? Well, a couple of things. First, and probably obviously, you're seeing this increasing deterioration in the culture of Israel in the time of Judges. We've seen men are not willing to be subject to the Word of God, we see that leading to fleshly living and leadership that's deteriorating along with it. And now you see as they're getting increasingly violent and vain and selfish and prideful and ignorant, now they're turning on one another. They have self-identities that are no longer the identity of Israel, they're an identity of a tribe. And they now view each other potentially as adversaries within the nation. How long do you think the nation of Israel could last under those circumstances where they allowed to persist? This is a sign that things have to change. God has to do something, and he will. But secondly, the fact that the language is different is really a key detail at this stage of the story. The languages between tribes have become so pronounced now, the differences are so obvious, that you can't have one tribe say something the way another tribe says it anymore. That's dramatic change. And it's especially dramatic when you consider the geography. We're not talking about huge expanses of land here. We're not talking about the kind of change you might expect in China or even in our own country from one area to the next. We're talking about a piece of land that's as small as some counties are in Texas. So we're not talking about a huge expanse of land, and yet within it we have this distinction now in which language is changing at least in subtle ways. And one of the most powerful, destructive sociological forces in culture is the divergence of language. When language changes, people separate. And that's what you saw happening with the Tower of Babel. When you can't know what someone else is saying, you assume, to a degree, that they could be an adversary. You have suspicion about them. What's the thing you always imagine when you're in an elevator with someone else and they're talking amongst themselves in a foreign language? What do you assume? What do most people assume when they hear that going on? Like there's silence for like the first three or four floors, and then somewhere in the middle of the trip, the person over there turns to the partner and says, blah, 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 blah. and then the other one says, oh, blah, blah, blah. what are they talking about? You. I wonder what they're saying about me. Oh, I wish I knew what they were saying. 
It's just human nature, right? They probably couldn't care less you're in the car, right? But the fact that you don't know what they're saying creates that sense. That was the essential force God used at the Tower of Babel to force the people who were gathered there to separate into the world. He assigned different languages which assured that the people would move apart from one another in fear and suspicion to some degree. And it was a very powerful force. Now, we have not reached the point yet in Israel in which men and women are speaking different languages. True. But you're starting to see the beginnings of the emergence of dialects. And if that was left unchecked, it would have grown over time to the point where it wasn't just how they said shibboleth, the word itself would have changed. And language would have continued to change with it. And that's a reflection of the fact that the tribes are beginning to think and act as if they were independent from one another. It's us against them. They're isolating themselves. And that's the source of the change in the language. When you isolate, language has a chance to become more unique within that isolated place and distinct from where it goes elsewhere. So the fact that language is changing is itself a reflection of the fact that these cultures are not mixing together anymore. That isolation will bring Israel to an end. It will create in its place 12 Israels of sort, which is not in God's economy. And it's a worrisome development. They're losing their national identity. So God is going to have to act to stop this. He will do it to a degree with the next judge who will unite Israel in a way that has not previously been seen for some time. But ultimately through the monarchy, God begins to bring the nation back in a new way. This is again not a unique pattern to Israel. Groups of any kind, when they lose the sense of identity, when they start to diverge in their purpose, when the words they use and the thoughts that they're conveying begin to splinter, they're no longer a group. And eventually they're going to become either enemies or at the very least competitors in some way. That's the pattern you see in the church in some places today as well, over the last many centuries. Denominations, sects, other divisions that occur within the body are just as damaging to us as they were in Israel's day, if left unchecked. And even if you and I choose to stay out of denominational disputes, which is largely where we are today in this church, we don't have a denomination, we don't ascribe to any, we don't want to ascribe to any, we just don't care to be a part of that whole nonsense. We have one God, one Bible, one Spirit. There's nothing more needed than that, right? Anything beyond that just starts to complicate matters. Nonetheless, though, and I find this very ironic, a lot of non-denominational churches have effectively created denominations amongst themselves by how they have adopted some very similar patterns in language, saying things in similar ways, acting in similar ways, and not always for the better, obviously. We need to guard against our tastes, our desires, our patterns, our habits becoming doctrine, or dogma at the very least. And in doing so, we isolate. And now it's an us versus them. We need to guard against that. Because in some ways, you're one step away from a war again. And it gets in the way of serving God. Alright, so what's next for Israel then? Well, we ain't finished with the chapter yet. There's a little bit of footnote here to this chapter before we see the next judge. The next judge is Samson, one you've probably heard of, but a very powerful man, one who has a long story in the book of Judges. But before that, you have to get through the end of this chapter to understand where God is going. If God isn't ruling his people now, or so it would seem he's not ruling his people, they're just wandering off wherever they're going to go, then what's going to stop them from walking off the cliff into oblivion? Well, we know the Lord's still on his throne, so he is going to act. But he's going to act as he's been doing through a time of judges, through men who were equipped with the word of God and with the rule through the law over the people. And in the cycle of judges, we remember there's always a response to rebellion. So you have rebellion leading to God's judgment. Judgment begets rescue. So the Lord is going to have to bring the people through a period of judgment 
for their sins so that there's a chance for them to feel repentance so that he can restore them again with a judge. But before we get to all that, Samuel's going to recount the bridging between where we are now and where that next cycle picks up. And there's a series of very short-lived judges that bridge that gap and set ourselves up for where we're going in the study of Samson. So read with me, verse 7 through verse 15. Jephthah judged Israel six years. Then Jephthah the Gileadite died and was buried in one of the cities of Gilead. Now, Ibzan of Bethlehem judged Israel after him. He had 30 sons and 30 daughters whom he gave in marriage outside the family. And he brought in 30 daughters from outside for his sons. And he judged Israel seven years. Then Ibzan died and was buried in Bethlehem. Now Elan, the Zebulonite, judged Israel after him, and he judged Israel ten years. Then Elan, the Zebulonite, died and was buried at Ijalon in the land of Zebulun. Now Abdon, the son of Hillel, the Parathonite, judged Israel after him. He had forty sons and thirty grandsons who rode on seventy donkeys, and he judged Israel eight years. Then Abdon, the son of Hillel, the Parathonite, died and was buried at Parathon in the land of Ephraim in the hill country of the Amalekites. Alright, so let's just review this quickly. Not all of these men deserve a lot of attention. There's a couple of moments worth stopping on. But the whole point of this list is, in part, the fact that these people just came and went in short order with relatively brief periods in power with not a whole lot of accomplishment under each name. That's kind of the point that the Lord is making here. And let's start with Jephthah. He judges for six years, and then he dies. You know, a lot happened in just those six years. So if you compare him, for example, to Gideon, in Gideon's case, we saw a failure in his walk as he moved to the end of his life as judge, right? At the end of the time he spent judging, he was willing to adopt idolatry again within the nation. And if that was his chief failure, his, his willingness to adopt idolatry, then we can say Jephthah's chief failure was his ignorance of the Word of God. He just didn't know the Lord, not in the sense of fully understanding Him from His own Word. But in both cases, the failure of these men had consequences for the people of God with them. And that's been the central lesson of Judges, that the men who were leading were imperfect, they led in imperfect ways, in whatever ways their sinful, selfish heart drove them. And then in direct relationship to their knowledge of God, they either walked with Him or fell. And in all cases, they came to a point of falling because their hearts didn't know Him fully. Gideon left him for an idol. Jephthah never knew him properly by his word. And in only six years, what Jephthah accomplished was he lost his only child and he brought the nation into civil war. And then he was done. And then after him, you see a series of lesser judges, each with brief periods of time. You see the first here. Ibzan, he's known for his 30 sons, his 30 daughters, which is a sign of wealth. Today, it's a sign of poverty. In their day, that would be a sign of wealth in the way the culture viewed it. Now, I can safely assume that he had multiple wives as well, or else his wife deserves an award of some kind. But we're pretty sure this is multiple wives working to get that, which means we have the reemergence of polygamy, which itself is not a good sign. So you see our cycle here again, turning back to bad. Following him came Elon, then Abdon. These were also men who show very little accomplishment. We just breeze right over them. The last guy there also had a lot of sons and apparently donkeys. Each of these men, when you see these large families, that means they're kind of ruling like a king. They're living high. They're taking advantage of the people. And that's another sign of things not going well. We can safely assume that the Lord only left these guys in power for short periods of time because there wasn't much going to happen under their watch. 
Perhaps they seem too interested in gaining wealth than they were in serving the Lord. Too interested in building up their own family than they were in serving the Lord. And just to be clear, those things aren't synonymous. There's, there's no human activity that's synonymous in all cases with serving the Lord. I can do good things from a selfish motive. That means I've robbed it of any of its goodness. In this case, the testimony, the feel of the text, is to point out these men in brief ways and only highlight this one issue. Big families, lots of donkeys. That would be sort of like us saying, oh yeah, there was that president, all he had was women out the door and a bunch of mansions. What would that say about him? In a simple way, it sums up a selfish self-centeredness with no concern for the job and what it needed to be for the sake of the people. It leaves you with that perspective. That's how these guys are being summed up. And their brief reign would appear to be an indication that God was not very pleased with them and didn't leave them in power for very long. This trade-off has never been different, guys. It's being called out here because it's pertinent to the story of Judges, but it's always been around. It's always been that some serve the Lord and they accomplish great things for Him in the time God gives them and, and often do it in quiet ways. You may never even know who these people are until we see them in heaven. And then there are those who serve themselves. And even more ironically, they do it under the guise of serving God. That's the worst combination. That's the hypocrisy. But there are those who, who seek temporal things, temporal wealth, temporal pleasure, temporal recognition. And that's not the kind of work that God desires. And He'll give people a range of opportunity to do that. He'll give them a certain leash that they can run with, or as we like to say, gives them enough rope to hang themselves. So it's not as though that the moment you stop serving God, He turns off the tap. There's plenty of evidence in Scripture of people who serve God for many years or said to serve God, but were really serving themselves. Saul is a great example of that. But we can guard ourselves against that fall that these men experience, this, this period of Judges exemplifies, if you keep remembering who you serve. If you remember you serve the Lord, one who will judge you one day for how you served Him, then you might have a second thought about whether you continue to serve yourself or not. If you serve Him by His Word, you work for eternal purposes. If you serve Him by His Spirit, you serve in a way that pleases Him. It can be here on Sundays in a church building, but it doesn't have to be here. In fact, most of the time it won't be here. It'll be at work, it'll be at school, in your home, in your neighborhood. God just wants you to know that when you wake up every day, it's Him you're serving. You didn't get placed in a position of privilege and now make the most of it for yourself. And I know it's sometimes odd to think of your service in a church as a position of privilege, but it is amazing how easily we can make something out of nothing for our own sake. You can become a big fish in a small pond. And when you start to think that way about your self-importance, you really put a, a stumbling block in your own path for what God's prepared to do with you. He wants followers who serve Him in a heart that wants Him to have glory. When you're that kind of a person, there's no limit to what God can do. So Israel has received judges because God wanted them to have access to His Word, to know His heart, to live according to that Word, and to serve Him. But they ignored His Word, so the people were left ignorant. They served themselves, so the people were left without shepherds. And as a result, the nation has begun to fracture. Language has changed. Civil war has ensued. The story of Judges, if it stopped right here, would leave you with no confidence whatsoever that Israel would exist another 50 years. God is going to give them a respite from this for a time with a man named Samson, who himself is a very flawed man. But in some ways, he's the perfect answer to this kind of a problem. He's a unifying man. And then following him, he lives all the way till Samuel is judge. Now you don't see Samuel's life recorded in the book of Judges. But Samson and Samuel are contemporaries. 
And it is only after Samson dies that Samuel is the sole judge in Israel. But for a time they work together. So this is the bridging judge that brings us into the time of, of the monarchs, which we won't study in this book, but just so you see where it's going. I just want to end by asking you guys to commit yourselves this year, coming into the new year, coming out of the Christmas season, to be thinking again about, am I seeking to serve God with the time he's given me on earth, or am I just biding my time? until I reach the end of what God has appointed for me. There's such a difference in attitude between the two. We want to be one, not the other. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you, Lord, for, for the mercy you've shown us in Christ, for the opportunity to serve you, to know you, and to serve you, and to represent you to a world that needs to know you so badly. It's a privilege, Father. It's a blessing. It's something that... Uh, we could never have understood or imagined before you revealed it to us in your Son. That the God who made all things could employ the likes of us. No, no work of flesh can bring a man or a woman to the place where they deserve that kind of opportunity, Father. We're, we're, we're always going to be in your debt. And we're so thankful, Father, that you made a way through your Son for men and women to be reconciled for our debts to be paid on the cross, for our sins, Father, to no longer separate us from you. And even as we still sin, because we, we still occupy a body that is fallen, that cannot be restored, it cannot be fixed, it must be replaced. And we look forward to that day, Father. But even now, while we live in this body and we know sin is still a part of our life, Father, we don't want to let our excuse be that we were sinful so we couldn't help but sin. Because your word won't give us that excuse, Father. Nor will it give us the excuse that we, we did not have time to serve you, we did not have energy or opportunity. Your word stands to testify, Father, that you have called us and you have made us a child of God by faith so that we would be your servant. And we would serve you in the, in the peace and joy that you made possible by Christ in our hearts so that we could actually serve without the burdens of law but rather with a, a desire to please you. But, Father, that service requires we work as one. We know that. It requires that we know your word and obey, and, and you've given us the call for that as well. I pray, Father, we would not see each other in, in ways that draw distinction, but we would see each other as brothers and sisters, united in one body by one spirit, and that that's how we would seek to serve you, Father. Leaning on one another, leading one another, serving one another, and as a whole, Father, being ambassadors to the world for you. We ask, Lord, you to use us that way. Let us remember that in this season and in the year to come. We thank you, Father, for your word this morning, and we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.